welcome to the podcast of power, Ashira and the Princesses of Power companion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Nero. And I'm the other host, Jane. And welcome to a very special episode of the, the podcast of power. We, we finished season one. We're done with season one. It's in, it's in the bag. Yes, um, we, we, got, we got that all squared away. So, we figured what we could do is uh, we, ha- we got a few emails that, let's say, they were, they were kind of thick. They had a lot of text to go through that we couldn't really address on the main episodes. So, we decided at the end of every season, we'll do a kind of mailbag episode, recap episode, where we just kind of go deep into the, into the emails. Yeah, and it's um, it's really nice getting those emails. By the way, thank you very much for sending them. Um, we were super blown away by all of the the engagement we've gotten, and um, you know, we're really excited to do like this sort of mailbag recap thing because we were kind of already thinking about doing like a recap, but you know, the additional like email component definitely helps fill out the rest of the runtime of the episode for sure all of the responses that we've been getting um just sort of going off of our own analyses and offering new ones uh it's been fantastic we we really can't be more grateful for our, our listener base and how active they are um and to start off this episode i think we're gonna have an announcement when we started this podcast, it was more that it was just something we wanted to do. That we just love Shira with all of our hearts, and we wanted to really dig into it and, and analyze it and see why it is so good. You know, we we wanted to see how the engine runs, and we weren't really expecting it to pop off, and it did. Yeah. It, this this was this was always kind of and, and we touched on this i think an episode or two ago but like yeah this was always mostly just like a friend project we just kind of wanted to have a repository for all of our blathering about this uh fun television program but uh but yeah we're we actually have some amount of an audience now so we have decided that we're going to set up a, a patreon um because both Jane and I, you know, we're, we're busy. This is a, this is a side gig um, for us. And we aren't going to be charging exorbitant amounts. There are going to be two tiers. Um, we know that times are tight out there right now. So if you want to support us but don't really have the space, we have a $1 tier that you can just, you know, uh, toss us uh, $1 a month. It's going to be called Horde Cadet. Um but if you want to, you can give us $3, and that will give you access to two bonus shows we're planning on starting Tune and Jane. What are those bonus shows? Yes, so our fun bonus shows we're going to be doing, uh, we're going to be doing The Owl House, and we're also going to be doing uh, Kippo, uh, which I'm very excited about both of those, actually. I've been seeing a lot of Owl House stuff on my timeline recently that's been getting picking up a lot of steam, and it looks really, really good. Uh, yeah, both of those are going to be a little bit different than in format than our usual stuff, because obviously we're going in pretty blind. We know some stuff, but we are overall not really, we don't really know where our, everything is going. So how, this, how that's going to work is that every two weeks you will get uh, either a Kibo cast or an Owl cast alternating. 
So next week, we're going to set, put up our first episode of our, our Blind uh, Keepa podcast, which is going to be a little bit more of like a recap and review and maybe some speculation about where things are going. Yeah, it's not going to be like a live watch kind of podcast, but it'll just be kind of like uh, our reactions and and uh, interpretations of like what's going on um, just entirely within the context of just that episode, basically. And, uh, you know, then there's one week off. And then the week after that, we are going to be putting up our Owl House podcast. Same deal. Um, not a live watch, but just something that we are going to be taking as it goes and building the context on our own. It'll be kind of more like the, the first half of this podcast, I guess, but a little bit looser. Um, but, yeah, that, those are our plans for now. We, are, we have some tentative plans to expand more bonus content as we go on uh we've talked about like a fan work showcase there might be an actual play one shot of the um the shira inspired tabletop game for the honor in the future but you know we'll take that as it goes yeah we have we have a lot of ideas floating around for what we could be doing so uh so hey you know keep your eyes peeled Yes, keep your eyes peeled, and uh, thank you once again, everyone, for, you know, listening to our little show. Yeah, thank Speaking you very which, much. We should probably start uh, that show now. Yes. So, we f uh, finished season one last week. We, you know, I've been watching the show semi-continuously since I watched season five with a bunch of people. But, you know, it, it is different... Season one is an interesting beast because I would say it is probably the weakest season overall. I'm going to make that claim even with a lot of people saying season two is the weakest. I think season two has a lot of really, really good individual episodes, even though it doesn't really have a full arc of a season due to it being cut in half. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's like season two has a couple of like, standout week episodes i think but generally speaking um season one is like they're still getting their footing they're still kind of figuring out um what this show really needs to be um and they're also doing a lot of establishing stuff and you know it just it gets a little shaky at times and um it ends up being the weakest overall that being said the weakest for for Shira standards, is still pretty good. Yeah, like, you're not gonna find us saying season one is anything other than, you know, pretty great TV, all things considered. And you'll find that a lot of shows, their season ones are generally the weakest because they have to do so much heavy lifting um, that later seasons do not have to do at all. Yeah, there's a lot... You know, a season one, there's there's so much setup you have to do. There's so much, like, establishing of not just, like, lore, but, like, characters and relationships and, like, locations and stuff. You gotta spend a lot of time kind of building a mental map for the audience that you don't necessarily get to skip over or kind of work around things to make the narrative flow better. Right. Um, I wanted to say that uh, so just just some some quick 
spicy rankings here. Um, the best episode of season one is Promise. I don't think that's controversial at all. No, yeah, for sure. The most surprising episode upon rewatch, though, uh, for me, was In the Shadows of Mysticore. I had forgotten how much that episode did and how good it was. I'd be inclined to agree with that also, actually, because um, I had forgotten how much of The Shadows of Mysticore actually spent on the relationship between Shadow Weaver and Adora and on how much that like is affecting her it's 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 a really really strong episode for sure yeah i I just you know when you think season one your mind is usually goes towards princess prom and and no princess left behind and kind of the the latter half of the season but in the shadows of mysticor is an extremely strong showing weakest episode of the season for me is either going to be the battle of bright moon or raz um it's a kind of a close tie between those two yeah i mean again i we're kind of in agreement on this one raz raz is an episode that really nothing happens in more or less i mean it establishes a location of the beacon it establishes raz as a character it establishes that Mara exists, but like other than that, there's not a ton that goes on. And then of course the Battle of Bright Moon. We spent a whole two hours uh last week talking about how that kind of was fairly disappointing in a lot of ways. Right. And once again, we're not saying that the Battle of Bright Moon is a terrible episode. It's just it's a it's a weak Shira episode. Um but yeah, season one is interesting to have in the review as you look forward to the the weird situation with season two and three, where are we going to count them as one season, or are you only going to do one recap mailbag episode, or are we going to do it, two of them? Because I'm inclined for the former. I count those two as one season. Yeah, it's... I think that's probably a good idea i think that that makes a lot more sense than to split them up because it's like again they're they're half seasons it's so weird how they did that um i understand why but it's still a strange thing to do yeah it, um, but... it, it's it's a weird it's a weird thing uh that sometimes happens in 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 shows on netflix especially it seems Right, uh, but with that, we should probably start digging into this mailbag. Before we do, though, if you are a non-spoiler listener, um, you should probably stop the episode here. Yeah. Because <laughs> the, these questions hold no quarter. We are going to be talking about a lot of stuff throughout the whole series. We're going to be talking about, like, the finale a little bit. We're going we're gonna to be going all over the place here in a bit, in a minute here. So if you're... If you're uh, if you're like watching along with us and don't want to be spoiled on the end, then I would say uh, take this week off. Yeah, this is this is uh, these these mailbag episodes are going to be entirely just spoilerific. Um, it's not really possible to kind of split them up. So uh, yeah, enjoy the week off if you're if you're uh, uh, not joining us for the spoiler zone. And if you are, welcome. We're going to be talking about some emails. We have a lot of them. We we are going to be pulling from a few different users here. Um, 
uh, listeners who've emailed us stuff, we have arranged them in kind of a semi-chronological order for the, uh, you know, sort of clarity of, of stuff mm-hmm. so that uh, we, we can kind of structure this better. So we're going to start with some thoughts from someone who calls themselves Content Consumer. Great tag. Thank you so much for writing in, Content Consumer. Yes, really, really, really solid name. Thank you very much. So um, we're going to start with their sort of response to us on episode three, Raz. I'm surprised you didn't cover that Hordak was considering joining Adora, or excuse me, uh, didn't cover that Catra was considering joining Adora in that episode before Shadow Weaver brings her to Hordak, and he offers her the recognition she always wanted. I feel like one of the I feel like one of the ways the show tries to keep Catra somewhat sympathetic is by showing that she is someone who could make good decisions but isn't. It's it's one of the things that is pretty central to Catra's character, right? It's like one of the key things that makes her character function like mechanically is that she has to be presented with the correct choice in any given situation and every single time she has to choose the worst possible option. Yeah, it's it's one of the things that makes her arc really strong. I'm I'm not sure if we talked about this on the podcast, but one of the things that makes Catcher's Redemption arc actually work is one what this show thinks about redemption, which I'm sure we'll get to uh, talk about it at length in our season five episodes. But also, Catra is always sympathetic, even at her worst in season four, where she is just being horrible to absolutely everybody around her. The show balances... Like, Catra certainly has some some sort of supervillain moments. We saw some in the Battle of Bright Moon. She's got some big ones coming up in season three and four. But, like, she's dealing with a lot of stuff and a lot of emotions that she has no idea how to untangle. Yeah. Like, that's that's one of the core things about Catra, um, is that she makes all the wrong choices and she is, but she's not doing them for necessarily evil reasons. That's, that's one of the important things, right? Is that she never quite crosses that threshold into being a true monster. She gets really close a couple of times, but she never really crosses that threshold. The closest she gets is of course, when she basically murders uh, Glimmer's mom. Um, But like, even then that was kind of an unintentional consequence. She didn't, actually go out of her way to murder an individual right like she wasn't pulling that lever with the intention of saying oh well angela is clearly going to have to sacrifice herself to close this portal and thus take herself off the the chessboard that was not what she was thinking at all that that was a unintended repercussion of a very stupid decision yeah in fact honestly i don't in that situation catcher didn't even have a plan she wasn't even thinking about the rebellion or the horde at that point that was completely out of her mind that was like that was an impulse decision to get back at adora and that was the only thing going through her head at all at the time like that was like her entire thought process was hurt adora as much as possible right now which she feels horrible about all through season four like she she keeps getting these 
it's clear that she isn't sleeping like at all because every time she does sleep, she has these horrible guilt-driven nightmares um, that we see one of, and like the eye bags keep getting more pronounced. Her emotional state is extremely fragile in season four. Like, it, yeah, there, there's a lot you could say about Catra always taking the wrong path. There are so many moments you can point to, and the moment where she takes the right path or she makes the right choice yeah and that's what i think makes her arc so strong is that she has i would say i would say the portal is probably catcher's lowest moment or i guess not her lowest moment but the moment where she makes the most crucial mistake and that's the mistake that she really ends up self-destructing around and kind of forming a new person around and you know that that's like that is the like bottom of her fall essentially and it's it's very compelling watching her kind of climb back up out of the hole that um that she's kind of both simultaneously dug herself and also has been thrown into um by the various people in her life exactly Okay, and uh, so the next one is for episode four, Flowers for She-Ra. Kind of a tangent, but when you were bringing up how Shadow Weaver and Catra are foils, when it comes to power, it made me think about how season, season one, Shadow Weaver and Glimmer um, have a lot of similarities. Both of their arcs involve having inferiority complexes about having to recharge and about uh, chafing under a leader who isn't listening to them you know, going behind their back and then losing their powers later. Uh, Glimmer is, of course, also foil for Catra in Season 1, um, so this isn't too surprising, but it was the first time I thought about it. Yeah, I think it's a... Uh, the show has parallels everywhere, but even either, when you dig into the surface, there's parallels in places you don't necessarily expect. Um, certainly in season one, when I was watching it for the first time, I wasn't really considering Shadow Weaver and Glimmer as parallel characters because they're so vastly different in most ways. But the one way that they do uh, share a similarity so early on is that they both have incomplete connections to their runestone. Yeah, they... So um, the thing with Glimmer is she kind of has a half connection to a runestone she shares it of course um with queen angela um whereas shadow weaver her um connection to the runestone is kind of a parasitic one you know she used the spell of obtainment to kind of drain the power out of um the black garnet versus uh actually having a tangible connection with it in the way a princess does it becomes much stronger later on as, as we see Shadow Weaver attempting to groom Glimmer into the perfect queen in uh, season four, which works too well. Yeah, it works a little bit too well. She gets everything she wanted, and maybe she didn't want what she wanted uh, after all. that kind of that, That's kind of a recurring thing in this show. It's like, yeah, you won. It sucks, though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's like, congratulations. You know, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, as they say. But yeah, Shadow Weaver, like, her her journey as a character is, is so fascinating. It's, it's why we talk about her so much. Um, we're we're kind of going to go be breezing through these a little bit because these are all very long. So apologies if we don't read the whole thing, but we're, we're going to pick out the points 
that we think are interesting. Um, what's the next thing you got there for us, Jane? Uh, we got coming up next is uh, episode five, The Seagate. Um, one of the things I think this episode shows is why Scorpion and Catra had such a hard time working as a couple. Catra's issues are obvious and in your face, but Scorpia has issues uh, with personal space and actually listening to Catra that start out pretty bad here and never really fully go away. Uh, she is full of love and wants to share it, but often ends up ignoring what Catra is trying to communicate to her in the process. Um, of course, Scorpia gets better as the series goes on, but Catra gets much worse. And I think I think that's largely true. Like, I I definitely liked uh, Scorpia and Catra as a couple for a long time, especially um, once we get into the 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 Crimson Waste arc. Like that that's really strong. Um, I love how they kind of their dynamic meshes uh later on there but you know the thing is they they do have a lot of of pretty clear issues with like catcher's the kind of person who doesn't wear her emotions on her sleeve but she wants someone to like interpret them she like she's the kind of person who wants you to figure out what's wrong and ask her about it um but she doesn't want to be like coddled like she doesn't want like reassurance but she does want someone to figure out what the problem is right she isn't going to come to ask you for advice she's also not going to clearly show that something's wrong with her because that's showing weakness she also doesn't want to be you know what she perceives as as pitied or anything um, that she doesn't like when people dismiss her. It's just a sort of big old cauldron of contradictions. Uh, Catra's emotional state, which you know, kind of yeah. bears out over the show. Um, if I can read a little bit of the, the later half of this, because I think there's some interesting thoughts here. Um, yes. Uh, Content Consumer says, I kind of wish we got a little more obvious learning moment from Scorpia or comment on this in the show rather than just lampshading it in the portal reality when Scorpia calls out Adora for not respecting her personal space. That is, there there are things that I kind of wish we had a little bit more time for. Scorpia is definitely one of them. I like her arc as it is uh, quite a lot, but I think I would have liked a few more moments with some characters, uh, especially Adora. Yeah, I think, I think largely the show was pretty good about, like, cutting the most... Like, you, you gotta leave a lot on the cutting room floor when it comes to a show this tight, so... You know they made they made a lot of tough decisions, and I think largely they came to the correct ones. But yeah, if we if we could get a little more time with Scorpia, that would be nice. I think it would have been really nice to see Scorpia kind of come to a realization that like the way that she kind of handles um, interpersonal relationships is not like the best. Um, you know, she's very very nice and very sweet, but she's also very like like they said very much not aware of when she's invading people's personal space either like physically or like emotionally you know she doesn't really know when to kind of just stop and just chill out and i think she gets better about that without having like a big moment like i think i think that her development is very well shown in um season four and five the latter half of season four and the the sort of first few episodes of season five Specifically, I'm thinking about um, the the third episode launch and how she kind of is trying to navigate the princess's antagonistic 
uh, relationship with Entrapta. But yes, that, that'll be it for uh, the Seagate. What's next on the email docket? Yeah, so the next one is um, on Entrapta. I feel like you're letting her off the hook a bit here. Uh, she's aware of what she's doing to some extent. Um, little moments like her hiding her face from the light of the Black Garnet shows us this. And yes, there are some abstractions from the front lines, but she does have uh, front row seats to watching the bot she made, um, quote, as powerful as a princess, uh, trying to kill her ex-friends and is unwilling to listen to Bo when he uh, entreats her directly in the Snow episode. And Trapta's problem is that she doesn't take ethical considerations into her experiments. Um, I feel her arc is that the supportive relationship she is able to build with Hordak changes her perspective enough. Uh, she has a relationship she doesn't want to lose. Um, and viewing uh, completing the portal as possibly the end of her working with Hordak and is able to let go of the experiment and see reason uh, where she was willing to hack the planet and damn the uh, consequences before. Um, I don't feel like we're letting her off the hook so much as like... Entrapta doesn't, I don't think that Entrapta is, you know, watching her bots trying to, like, kill people so much. I don't think that that's ever something that necessarily crosses her mind. Like, she's not in it to actually harm people. Um, she's kind of more interested in, like, the performance of the robots, and she, I feel like, kind of has a really strong emotional disconnect, um, where she's not really... She's not putting two and two together here that, like, yes, her bot's performing well um, does mean that they're trying to hurt people, you know? Right, like that whole scene where uh, the, the the Super Pal Trio was on the Gamer Girl couch watching the live feeds of, of uh, Adora and all the princesses fighting their new robots, like... Yeah, they're, they're sort of not really treating it super seriously, like Entrapta is treating it much more like a field test... Um, like the, 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 it's a, it's, it's, there's still a disconnect viewing it through a screen. I don't know if she would react differently if she was literally there watching rather than just sort of like looking at it as a, as a, as a field test. Um, yeah, I don't think we're, we're not really letting her off the hook so much as trying to understand why she does the thing she, she does. Obviously she does a lot of, a lot of stuff out of, out of kind of not really thinking through the consequences. Um, but I definitely completely agree about her arc with Hordak. I think that is the core of it for both of them, where uh, Entrapta finally sort of forms a meaningful relationship with someone she didn't literally build, and Hordak finding someone who sees worth in him just as as he is yeah like i think that is that is a fairly important bit where like the entrapta hordak sort of relationship here and the relationship is a little weird to kind of quantify i you know i personally think of them more as friends than anything else but like i don't think either of them should really be rushing into any kind of romantic relationship anytime soon to be frank yeah, yeah, I don't feel like that would necessarily be great for either of them. They've got some stuff to work on before before they approach anything remotely close to that. But yeah, like, that, that relationship that they end up having is, like, really, really important to, like, actually getting them to understand that they need to um, both open up um, as people more, but also, like, 
place less importance on on their work and more importance on the people around them because before that point like for entrapta a lot of it's like you know she's happy to have friends but largely her friends kind of take a back seat to everything you know and of course hordak just doesn't even the concept of friendship isn't remotely in his mind they're not in the same zip code yeah i think i think generally like yeah very 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 positive development for both of them and that's like really important to getting them to like understand you know being being more complete people ready to talk about some uh princess prom stuff yes the princess prom stuff is as always always exciting uh this one's also from uh our good friend content consumer um i'd love for you to chat about scorpia's past here uh, in the context of season one, I was very interested in the idea that princesses themselves might have prejudices uh, that push allies away and contribute to the breakdown of the alliance. Frost to look down on honorary princesses and Trapta getting put on a leash a few times, uh, the nickname uh, Geek Princess generally not being understood, um, and Scorpia's story kind of make it feel like a background theme uh, in season one. I feel like the theme holds pretty strong with Entrapta, but drops off somewhere. Later, info in uh, Light Spinner and Princess Scorpia uh, does put Scorpia's story into a serious question. Uh, the fall of the Scorpion Kingdom is one of the things I'd love more context on. What is your take? So this is, uh, if you'll allow me, this is one that I've been thinking about for quite a while. Because, like, obviously the story she first tells um, about how her family gifted the horde the black garnet uh is bunk that's what the horde told her because we we see that they like took it by force that they assaulted the scorpion kingdom um like well i guess they kind of like just crash landed there but uh yeah i the fall of the scorpion kingdom is an interesting background element because for one we don't see any other Scorpion people in the show. We see a lot of weird, different Ethereum uh, races around. Like, we see the, the lizard people, we see the fawns, we see all this other stuff. We never see another Scorpion person. No, yeah. Scorpia and Catcher are fairly unique in that regard. I don't think we see another Magicat either. I think at the very, 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 very end of the show, like, there's a really brief clip on one of Horde Prime's monitors of Magicats, but, like, that's it. Um, so yeah, they're they're fairly unique. The thing about the fall of the Scorpion Kingdom for me is I'm not sure the story about giving up the Black Garnet is a hundred percent bunk. Like the way that it kind of comes off to me, right, is um, in the in the uh, episode where Scorpia is leaving with Emily and they they stop in the you know former I guess Great Hall. I believe you'll find that it is called Horror Hall. Ah, very true. Horror Hall. So when they're when they're walking through Horror Hall, um, she does tell Emily about, um, I think, her grandfather, I want to say. And how he was the one who kind of offered up um, the Garnet and the Kingdom. And the way that it kind of seems to me is there was like some sort of internal struggle here like where most of the scorpion kingdom probably was extraordinarily not on side and they kind of got betrayed by this grandfather character who gave who gave up like the kingdom in some way that's that's kind of how it always seemed to me 
Yeah, I could definitely see that too. Um, right, because there's a brief sort of pan across a like family portrait in the episode Princess Scorpio, where we see Scorpia has uh, Scorpia had two moms, and she mentions that her grandfather was the last regent of the Scorpion Kingdom. Um, the uh, Scorpia's arc is so interesting. Like I, I hate to keep using the word interesting, but it really is. Her her sort of journey is is parallel to Catra's almost. Yeah, kind of. I would say they kind of have like almost a mirrored like emotional arc in a way because you have you know Catra's whole thing is that she has a complete and utter refusal to acknowledge like her own emotional state um she's very bristly and defensive and you have this like interesting dichotomy of like trauma responses that you know you have Catra who she's kind of dealt with her own trauma and stuff by just turning into like a porcupine like nobody can come close to her she lashes out constantly she doesn't want anyone to get close or anything like that scorpio on the other hand she kind of went in the opposite direction um and this is and this is something that you see a lot of times and in people who experience trauma you have someone who ends up getting just very very positive and very friendly like overly friendly almost performatively friendly like you know like they're they can't express like anger or frustration or sadness or you know anything like that they kind of just become like a yes man you know they they let everyone kind of walk all over them and they just kind of go go with the flow in that way and i think you know scorpia kind of over the course of the show starts to peel that back a little bit and she starts to kind of be she she becomes more assertive she becomes more um in tune with her own emotional state and her own needs um so that's another important thing she doesn't really consider her own needs really not up until princess scorpia actually like she doesn't really consider her own like uh desires and safety even um you know it's always the only reason that she's making that decision to leave is because, you know, she doesn't want Emily to get hurt. Um, but, you know, in doing so, she's starting to kind of think about her own needs and how she, you know, herself uh, was also in danger and she needed to kind of come to that realization too. As well as finally telling Katra, like, no, you're a bad friend. You, you, don't, you don't treat me well at all, um, which is a fantastic moment. Especially Catra's reaction like she's just been shot in the gut. Yeah, that was that was a brutal just evisceration of Catra. Like the nicest person in the whole world tells you you're a bad friend. Yeah, you're you're gonna have a bad day because of it. But yeah, that was a that was a really, really critical moment for Scorpio was like actually saying what she thought. Like actually being like, you know, you know, I am hurt. You hurt me and I'm going to tell you about it. And that was a really big, important moment for her. So, yeah, I I love Scorpia's arc a lot. I love seeing her kind of, in a very similar way to Catra, kind of claw her way out of her kind of trauma defenses. Speaking of which, why don't you read us the uh, the question here that Content Consumer Gaza gave us for No Princess Left Behind? Because I want to talk about it. <clears throat> yes, absolutely. So... 
Uh, Content Consumer says, how seriously do you think we can take any of Catra's claims here um, and in promise? Uh, I feel like she is looking for easy answers to complex emotional questions and ends up lying to Adora and herself a lot throughout the series. Do you think she's lying when she tells Adora that she didn't expect her to die from the events of Promise in the Battle of Bright Moon? Catra spends 75% of the show completely lying to herself. That is just the sort of default state that she's in for almost this entire show. Oh yeah, she is in Denial City like 100% of the time. She's got a condo there. That's like... I think that she she did... She did believe that Adora wouldn't die from the events of promise because I don't think she allowed herself to think about the alternative I don't think she could bring herself to grapple with the idea of did I kill the person that I love um, she's, uh, she has to tell herself oh well obviously she'll be fine she's always fine I'm just not going to think about it. Yeah, exactly. And I think a really similar thing occurs in the Portal episode, right? Where, like, <clears throat> she stops She stops thinking. Her brain turns off, and the only thing uh, that is in her head at that moment is, Adora hurt me, I gotta hurt her back. So she's, like, in, in uh, Promise, she just has this incredibly manic situation where she basically kicks her off of a cliff and and cuts her out of her life and she yeah she probably just straight up didn't think about it or like tried not to think about it like at the end of that episode like when she she goes to like lay down uh after after she gets back to the fright zone she's very clearly having a bad time about it and i imagine uh not insignificant amount of uh the reason is because she was thinking hey did i actually kill adora i really hope not right like Catra, over the course of the show, I think she she stops lying to herself in season five. That is one of the big hurdles that she, she comes over, where she finally is able to start, like you said, clawing her way out of this trauma response. Um, but even earlier in, early in season five, she's still in denial study. She's like, oh, the, I mean, listen, I worked my way up in the horde on Etheria. I can do it here, too. I can use the exact same tactics and we'll be fine. And it turns out um, playing with Prime is completely different than playing with Hordak. They are they are not even within the same ballpark of competence or intelligence. Yeah, like Glimmer, Glimmer did her a very large favor by actually pointing it out. But yeah, Life Aboard the Velvet Glove is nowhere remotely close to how things are in the in the fright zone like this guy horde prime is the the monster to top all monsters this dude this dude genocides people for breakfast and doesn't even bat an eye about it he's he's so unbelievably in control he doesn't have staff right like that's that's a really critical thing he doesn't have like an army like the horde did he has robots and he has clones and that's it he doesn't need anything else so you know Catra imagining you know oh I'm gonna just work my way up to the top and I can be his number two like he doesn't have a number two he doesn't need one he's Horde Prime he's like the the sun and the moon the Alpha and the Omega he's everything yeah, I can't remember all of the all of the ridiculous nicknames that one clone 
uh, lists off in episode two, but I wish I did because they're all pretty great. Yeah, they're like he has some like he has some wild uh, monikers that he's he's given himself. But yeah, you know she kind of needed to to snap out of it a little bit, and unfortunately for her, it comes a little bit too late, um, and she ends up uh, she ends up getting messed up a little bit because of it. But you know. All right, so. It's time to tackle Promise. We have a lot of content, uh, a lot of emails about Promise, which makes sense. It's a very dense episode. Um, so I feel like we should be a bit breezier here. We're getting a little long, um, but we, we do want to hit a few things. So why don't you just take it away? Yes. Um, so for for Promise, we've actually got, we've got content from uh, two different people here. Um uh, the first half is going to be from Content Consumer, but the second half is actually from uh, another user by the name of uh, Harry Henderson. Um, so we'll do the we'll we'll tackle the first uh, bit here. I agree with you on Light Hope. Uh, not sure I agree with Lonnie that Catcher's Jury Tricks are on the same level as a two-on-one, though. I think Catcher's frustration there is fairly reasonable from the perspective of a child. Um, I think her flaw is more that she didn't build the interpersonal relationships that Adora did with the rest of the crew, but the uh, Golden Child versus Scapegoat dynamic they had from Shadow Weaver was uh, something that probably did not help there. Right. Catra, the the thing that is quickly revealed about Catra once Adora leaves is that she doesn't actually have any friends, really, other than Adora. She, um... She was a bit too prickly for everyone else. A lot, a lot of the kind of childhood flashbacks we have of Catcher deal with her getting in fights with other kids, or even at one point an adult. Like she was, she was a, she was a, she, she, she really didn't build those social dynamics with anyone else. No, yeah, I think something about Catcher also, um, and I think this is really, really, really obvious when you take into account like her childhood is that she is one of those one of those kids who their primary method of receiving attention is through negative attention right like the vast majority of people do not treat her very well adora is like really the one exception she she likes to receive um positive attention from adora but she also like kind of only knows how to lash out and kind of only knows and is comfortable with like negative attention a lot of the times so yeah she'll like deliberately antagonize people and she'll get angry and she'll get prickly and i think a lot of it just ends up being like she is very like attention seeking you know she's not being given positive attention from Lonnie um, or the others. Like so, she's like, well, you know, if I just keep antagonizing them, they'll they'll keep like, you know, being around me. And I think that's that's kind of a kind of a thing. And also, it like, you know, whenever she gets kind of that negative attention, Adora comes to her rescue, right? And that's like, uh, that's also a big thing for her as a kid, like. And, and that's something that in Promise, I think that Catcher like thinks about a lot because she's, you know, now that she's been like kind of abandoned by Adora in a lot of ways, at least in her own mind, you know, this acknowledgement of the idea that she relied so heavily on being saved um, continuously. Um, and that was like her primary mode of like getting 
like positivity in her life i think that she really really started to resent that super hard and that's that's definitely one of the things that kind of forced her over the edge in the episode right um there's some other good bits here too that kind of lead in uh, or sort of lead into that of Katra's emotional state and the things that sort of propped that up um i'll read from here uh Adora was never able to keep the promise even before leaving uh, because Shadow Weaver molded her impression of Katra into someone who she couldn't expect support from. She thinks of her only as someone to support, her, to support herself and doesn't really even think she can take care of herself, so she doesn't see her as an equal. She never looks to Katra for support, thus Katra eventually realizes that she's never been able to keep the promise either, as she tells Glimmer in Heart Part 1. Um, the promise, of course, being you look out for me and I look out for you. Nothing really bad can happen as long as we're together. I don't know. I I don't think I agree necessarily that... I don't agree with Adora not thinking of Catra as an equal. I do agree yeah. that she saw Catra as someone she needed to protect, but... I don't think she looked yeah. down on Catra. No, I, I super don't think she looked down on Catra. I also don't necessarily think that it was like... I don't think it's necessarily that she she didn't look to Catra for support because she couldn't expect support. I think it was more like Catra was the one who needed support. Adora... So one of the things that we've talked about kind of at length is Adora having this built up complex um where she has to kind of have the weight of the world on her shoulders so i don't think it's so much as like she doesn't feel like um katra can support her but more that like it's not katra's responsibility to support her really like adora should be able to support herself and katra you know, in her head, like, she's supposed to be the one who can handle all of that. It's less about Shadow Weaver molding Adora's vision of Catra into someone she can't look to for support, and more of Shadow Weaver molding Adora's vision of herself into someone who shouldn't need support. Exactly. There's definitely an aspect of, of, of their relationship where Catra thought Adora was looking down on her, but I don't think that was really going through Adora's head. Adora, just like even to the very end, is she does love her friends, but she sees herself as the one who has to do everything, who can't turn to anyone else for support. She resists it so much every time she has to do it. Yeah, like I think an interpretation that that Catra has of Adora um, for most of the show is that you know, Adora has to be the hero. She always has to be the hero. She wants to get the glory. She wants to, you know, feel superior. She wants to feel, make Catra feel weak um, and powerless. And like, she needs to rely on her, you know, every hero needs a sidekick, right? But like, Adora really doesn't feel any of that. Like, Adora is just someone who has been told that everybody is relying on her and her performance and her ability and her strength and that she can't fail she can never she has to be the rock for everyone else because 
like she's she is a load bearing pillar here she can't fail she has to support everyone else including herself and you know it's 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 definitely not um the way that katra um is kind of is kind of seeing it with that i think you should take us into the second half of our promise chat from uh harry henderson yes uh so harry says um in superhero comics uh there's usually an inciting incident that makes the hero into who they are um and sets them on the path um they take uh for catcher and adora their origin is the scene uh we see in promise where the younger versions of them go back uh into the black garnet chamber uh this moment shapes both of them and their journeys uh for the rest of the story it shapes the people they are at the start um and who they become um but this moment shows the root uh of all their struggles throughout the series um Katra's told her life has no worth outside of adora's fondness and dora is told uh that shadow weaver's cool tre- cruel treatment of Katra is entirely her fault um, for not keeping Katra in line. Uh, this is what set them off on their separate paths and ultimately what left, uh, what led them to converging again. Uh, the climax of the entire series is a love confession between the two, but it is also them finally being able to move forward from their abuse and accept their feelings and wants instead of repressing them. Yeah, I think, I think that's kind of on the money there a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's basically how it is, right? Like, they kind of it gets it gets kind of set in motion for them and it sort of establishes their entire dynamic and you know it's it begins it begins this whole this whole wild ride and i think yeah that's definitely right on the money one could argue that maybe that that is what sets them on their sort of heroic and villainous paths but i think the moment that sort of ties their fates and their relationship together is the the titular promise which happens earlier chronologically but you you harry is certainly right about that moment being the thing that sort of makes modern catra and adora who they are for sure for sure let's see and they uh they also continue um with a different with a different part of the question uh the fourth wall is broken in both Promise and Corridors. Uh, in Promise, young Catra looks directly at older Catra. Uh, then older Catra cuts Adora off uh, the ledge with the Sword of Protection. In Corridors, young Adora looks directly at older Catra. Then older Catra decides to save Adora by rescuing Glimmer. Uh, two very different decisions were made by Catra after these memories. Do these flashbacks impact Catra's decision-making? Why does she make a bad decision when faced with baby Catra and a good decision when faced with baby Adora? I don't know if that makes sense, LOL. So we were talking about this before the show. These two moments are very interesting because... So one of them is driven by, ultimately, Light Hope manipulating the the Crystal Castle to show Catra these things. To, to sort of purposefully lead her to this moment, this promise. We talked about that in the episode's spoilers. Yeah, like, largely, the thing is, um, with with the, the fourth wall breakage in Promise, it's more like, it's kind of a more active manipulation, right? Like, that's that's light hope just doing doing her absolute best um to set catcher off as hard as possible but in corridors it really isn't it's not the same situation you know you you don't have someone who is deliberately like 
playing these these mental puzzle pieces um, in such a way as to kind of lead her in the worst possible direction. Corridors, her seeing young Adora is kind of her visualization of all of this like inner turmoil and self-introspection she's been doing throughout this entire set of early season five episodes. This is her sort of coming to terms with the things that she's done and realizing who she's been doing it to is someone who still loves her. Like, it's it's a hard thing to finally realize after all this time. And, and that is what yeah. sets it apart. One of them is a manipulative, like, visual to finalize a poor decision to push Adora further away from everyone else so that Light Hope can mold her into the weapon she wants to. The second moment is Catra, like, self-actualizing, realizing that she does need to do something right by Adora. Yeah, like, they both ultimately end up being, like, moments of deep introspection, um, but they're definitely, like, they're cat- they're catalyzed by different like sets of reasons and they ultimately are happening in very 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 different points in Catra's life you know I think that I think that largely like it makes a lot of sense that that you know one would set her off in a bad way and the other would actually make her kind of make a correct decision to uh to continue on to the last bit um from uh from this here for uh for light hope and uh no princess left behind i really enjoyed your take on swiftwind as an opposing force to light hope's duty mentality when it comes to adora uh so on one hand we have light hope and shadow weaver on the other hand we have uh swiftwind and raz uh where do you put uh angela on that spectrum uh on first watch i viewed her as a wholly positive influence on adora's life but with adora's whole arc in mind it feels like sometimes angela was happy to shift responsibility onto shira or reinforce that Adora had value as She-Ra, um, and that her arc was was overcoming that. I think that is, I think that's a good read on on the way Angela kind of slots into that. Angela kind of is the middle point, right? Because Light Hope and Shadow Weaver are can, are intent on molding Adora into what they want. Raz and Swiftwind represent the sort of freer spirit that characterizes Etheria's natural magic. Angela, as a angelic being, but also as a queen, is kind of caught between those two. Ultimately, I think what she realizes is that, like, Adora is not just valuable because she's Shira. she's valuable because she's a good person and a good friend that's what her whole final talk is about um but i think i think content consumer here has a point about often angela would kind of put a lot of emphasis on Shira in battle plans and such yeah i think that that's one of the things that angela kind of overcomes a little bit I think it, it relies very heavily on her cowardice, actually. Like, that's that's actually quite a large, like, point for her character is, like, her extreme cowardice. Her, she doesn't want the people closest to her getting hurt, so she's willing to sacrifice other people um, 
to to make sure that doesn't happen and you know adora largely is a stranger to her um for especially season one um so yeah her relying on like you know shifting the responsibility onto she-ra this like seemingly invincible magical being who lives in a sword that this horde defector gets to access whenever you know like yeah she's gonna offload some responsibility on that especially if it means that she can kind of keep her own daughter out of harm's way so um but she does she does kind of you know obviously she starts seeing adora as a much like as a member of her own family as um a valuable friend even and you know as as she overcomes her own cowardice you know she like she does start to pull back on that like you don't see you don't see her shifting the responsibility onto Shira very like very much or certainly not in the same way as that she does in like season one right um there's some other stuff in here about the nature of self-sacrifice and how every self-sacrificial character's like sacrifice gets portrayed but i think we're gonna save that talk for the episodes themselves i think there's a lot of juicy stuff to talk about with that um so why don't we go to the uh the content consumers questions on the battle of bright moon yes so uh this one is uh with regards to Bo and glimmer feeling out of character i feel like Bo and especially glimmer have an arc in the show about them trying their best to be supportive to adora but sometimes not being able to due to not understanding her abuse um or ptsd uh shadows and mystic or touches on this and i feel like glimmer fundamentally not understanding or empathizing uh, with uh, Dora's experience of abuse from Shadow Weaver is one of the big things that causes the rift between them in season four. I think one of the things that makes it hard to help Adora is that her self-sacrificing nature can easily be read as heroic by the people around her. Um, and on that note, Adora seems to learn the lesson of relying on others many times throughout the show, but it never seems to stick until the end. Why do you think that is? So I think... I think it's a I think it's definitely like a a good read that this gap between Glimmer not being able to kind of understand or empathize with Adora's abuse um is definitely one of the things that that really drives a wedge between them in season 4. I think like you'll you'll notice a lot of times um with people, you know, friends family that sort of thing people who are very very supportive of you um and and the things that you've had to experience from you know your you know your life they when that person if that person comes into their lives and they can kind of be they don't they they might not seem as bad right like they're they're charming or they're like like they they they're well spoken or or they're helpful you know they're just trying to be helpful to you and that sort of thing like shadow weaver kind of pulls right like she tries to be you know very helpful and supportive of glimmer and you know glimmer kind of starts to get this impression of like well you know she's not that bad and i don't think it ever gets to the point where she's necessarily thinking that adora exaggerated anything but i think that she does largely kind of start to interpret things as like, well, you know, she's she's not a horrible person. You know, she just wants to help and, and that sort of thing. And obviously Adora knows a lot better than that. 
and uh, yeah, that definitely uh, does not sit well with her. But I do think I do think largely like I stand by the idea of like the them being kind of out of character in in the Battle of Bright Moon because I don't feel necessarily like that was a moment where they weren't like getting her abuse or her PTSD so much as it was just like them kind of glossing over it like it didn't really happen I guess if if you get what I'm saying right like the, it was just Adora saying that it was all her fault this wasn't necessarily something tied to Shadow Weaver directly it's it's something that would they would normally push back on like this definitely isn't her fault um, and it does it just it it just feels really weird that there's no concession to that um, I do agree with the rest of this though I think that is a very interesting part of the the sort of conflict in season four that I never really thought about before so thank you content consumer yes thank you very much and I do want to touch that last bit um, also specifically because um, like Adora not really having that lesson stick again it's another like it's another very real like parallel here where like it's it's a hard thing to overcome these kind of trauma induced behaviors right like you can push yourself to the point where you're like okay well you know i can't rely on others i don't have to like put the entire world on my shoulders in this exact instance but that doesn't mean that it's not going to be equally as hard um, to do that same conclusion um, the next time it comes up, right? It's kind of like, it's kind of a Sisyphean thing. You kind of have to push the boulder up the mountain over and over and over again. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of support. And, you know, you see that through the show. Like, she will acknowledge it. She'll start to get a little better and then she'll backtrack a little bit. She'll have to start pushing the boulder up the mountain again and it isn't until the very end of the show that she actually gets to the point where you know it's gonna be easier it's not fixed but like she gets to a point where you know she has checkpoints on that mountain now she can she can start three quarters of the way up instead of all the way from the bottom you know she doesn't have to go through every single hurdle um, on the way to kind of shrugging the atlas. It certainly doesn't help that the entire time she's trying to learn this, she still has people in her life trying to pull her the other way. Um, first Light Hope, and then Shadow Weaver in season four and five. Like Yeah, and then like the whole the whole world is kind of doing it a little bit, right? Like, because she does have kind of a worldly responsibility being placed on her. I actually wanted to hit um, the last bit of this email here, um, as far uh, content consumer says, as far as telling a war story, how much do you think uh, was hampered by budget limitations as to how many characters they could be animating on screen at one time? I feel like one of the reasons they needed so many people working on this episode, and that the animation somewhat suffered at times, is that it was one of the few that actually depicts an army for any length of time, and I think that's true. Um, there's always this, like, tension between telling an animated war story and the realities of depicting, like, a working army, because those are large. Um, and even this one, like, this is the closest we see to the Horde as, like, an organized military organization. 
there aren't really any other moments where we get to see that except in um, season five, of course, with the Galactic Horde. Like, there are lots of shows. Like, you know, let's let's take Beast Wars for instance. It's it's about war. The war is in the title. Um, it was ludicrously expensive to create a CGI show back in the 90s so you had the situation where this war was being fought by like nine dudes on a planet yeah, nine very small yeah dudes. they're very little um so that is definitely one thing and like the clone wars budget and the fact that it can just infinitely reuse models with very very little touch-up is one of the reasons it works so well as a war story like it's kind of perfect that the clones all look the same and you can just kind of copy and paste and maybe like make them look slightly different for different characters um but ultimately yeah you can just you can just fill the screen with clones and droids whenever you want yeah it's like just just pull the lever dump dump them in there it's not it's not too difficult um for that but yeah i think i do think i do think largely like one of one of the things and even in this episode right you don't see that much of the horde military you see a bunch of tanks you see like i don't know maybe a dozen two dozen of these hover tanks a couple of skimmers but really it's not an enormous amount of like military personnel like i think maybe maybe like 6 to 9 horde soldiers might be the most that were ever on screen at any one time is that right that sounds right like they aren't really depicted on like there's not a shot of all of the horde soldiers marching across the land like stormtroopers yeah they're they're mostly in tanks or on skiffs there's no like wall of meat that makes you just go whoa that's a lot of dudes yeah like if anything like it kind of like, I think that they're trying, like, they tried very hard to kind of make the Horde look imposing and, like, they had a lot of military hardware on, like, on the table, but, like, objectively, they really didn't have that much to kind of throw at them. It kind of felt a little bit wimpy, and that's, that is one of the things that kind of makes the scene kind of collapse in on itself is because you don't necessarily get this sense of like a big impending like doom stack army like marching on bright moon you kind of just get the impression it's catra and like everybody from the mess hall got in a convoy and rode on over right it, it just all looks a little bit silly as soon as you uh look too closely yeah it's kind of it's kind of more of like a play army than it necessarily is a real one which I mean, that it's kind of perfect in that way, because, yeah, Hordak's army is kind of just a bunch of people playing soldier compared to, the you know, the work that Horde Prime does. Once we see the Galactic Horde, I think there are some moments where they do depict the vastness of Prime's empire very well. Um, I think the time spent on the Velvet Glove is very effective at, at like, building the sense of scale. I think the shot in the heart part two where just a billion clones teleport in um, all around the battered combatants. That's also very good. Like, uh, I think they did turn around their limitations into being a, a thematic um, weight there at the end. Once you see just how, like, yeah, 
literally Hordax Horde is a bunch of kids in like plastic armor with zappy uh, with zappy sticks. Like that's it. Yeah, it's it, it does end up. Yeah, I think largely it, it ends up like turning one of the show's like weaknesses into a strength there because you know it kind of reinforces that impression of like yeah the the play army versus the big boys so yeah i think i think that ends up working out pretty well but so for these next two emails harry henderson sent quite a few uh we've got some about catcher's arc we've got some about fail safe i am hesitant these are all extremely good i am hesitant to talk about them because we're going to be getting into all of this stuff so we might be talking about these at a later date um, but I just wanted to thank Harry for sending these in because this is a wild wall of text. Yes, it's a, it is a lot of like, honestly, really, really good questions and points. Um, and, and yeah, like, thank you very much for, for sending this in. I haven't forgotten about you. We'll get around to it eventually. We just don't want to burn all the fuel yet. Um, yeah, we want to make sure we've still got plenty of uh, plenty of ammo in the chamber for when we actually get to like you know really digging into Katra and and of course fail safe the episode. Uh, the last couple of questions here, we've got a couple from Jennifer um, that I quite like. So this first one's really interesting. At what point in the series does Adora realize that she loves Katra versus at what point in the series does Katra realize she loves Adora? These are very different answers. Yeah, very, very wildly different answers. Like, um, we were talking about this really briefly before we actually, like, started recording. Katra, I think, definitely realizes it pretty early. Like, for both of them, unconsciously, obviously, almost the whole time, right? Like, basically from, from episode one, I think both of them unconsciously are very, very much in love with each other. But as far as when Catcher kind of consciously gets it, probably I would argue maybe it's so hard because there's so much that we don't see. It could be any moment, honestly. Like, is it I don't think it's the promise. I think that was too early for either of them to conceptualize that. No, I think honestly it might be the the portal the portal two parter is when Catcher realizes it because like I think Catcher might like like she like she got it and that just made her way angrier right that just made everything worse like once you realize what you think about this person and then the last interaction you had with them was them giving you a death glare that does hurt that doesn't make things better at all yeah no i think i think catra like literally saying she's willing to burn the whole world just to see Adora suffer, I think is like that level of a breakdown. I feel like you need an extra push. And I think definitely like right around there is probably when she realized not like that. She, that she is, has been and probably still is in love with Adora and like how painful that is for her and how painful that is for Adora to have, inflicted on her like adora did this to her this is she needs to get adora back for that you know it's interesting that season four is the is the season that they interact the least like i'm pretty sure they only have one conversation that entire season adora and katra yeah yeah so she kind of has to sit there and she just kind of has to sit there and like 
think about it, right? Like, she has this realization. She just has to sit there and just simmer in it. Like, one of the, the there's two conversations in, in season four that Adora and Catra have. One of them is Double Trouble um, as Catra, and the other one is Adora just, like, completely shutting down Catra's attempts to, like, banter when she has uh, that entire village captured. Like, Adora just says, yeah. I'm not here to play. You know what you did. You have to face the consequences. Like, she's she's not happy. Yeah, that's, that's a rough scene for Catra, isn't it? It is. Um, so, yeah, I think that's when she knew. Maybe she knew earlier, but, like, she knew for a hell of a lot longer than Adora, who I think we both agree only realized it uh, after the kiss. Yeah, no, literally, like, Adora is Dumb. somebody... Adora is not smart. Adora is not smart, um, and she largely wears her understanding of the world on her sleeve. Not necessarily her emotions, but her understanding of things. Very much, she's an open book. And she is utterly oblivious to her own feelings and to Katra's feelings. Like, Katra has to literally say, I love you, before Adora before it could pass the blood-brain barrier for Adora to metabolize that information. Right, like, she she's here dying from an alien plague as the world is about to explode around her. And the thing that brings her out of it is Catra saying that, that she loves her. And the first thing this idiot says upon, like, waking up is, is like, you love me? Yeah, like, ugh. Adora, you... You're as dumb as a doornail, and we love you for it, but, like, God, yeah, she just, she is the kind of person who, like, the, the idea of thinking about something hard enough to actually, like, come to the realization that maybe she has feelings for Catra, like, that, like, her and that possibility are miles apart. Yeah, like. The the arc words for their relationship in season five are Catra telling Adora she's such an idiot, like literally. Yeah, like that. Yeah, that's like the the arc phrase for that whole season. Which, by the way, great touch. Love that. Because Catra knows, she knows what she feels at this point. Um, clearly, like I think the 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 line in the heart part one, where she she admits that she loves like Adora doesn't want me and like I want her hit me like a sledgehammer the first time I watched it. I'm pretty sure I literally said oof out loud. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh that was that was a strong moment. I I love that moment. I can't wait till we get to that bit. That's ooh, that's one of my favorite lines in the whole show can't actually. Talk about it. We got to save it. Which brings us to Jennifer's second uh, email here. We find out the fake story that Hordak found Adora as a baby, but in reality, Light Hope did. But at the end of season five, we see Hordak finding Adora. He seemed to be unaware of Adora's existence when baby Adora was brought to him in season one. Is the final season five seen a continuity error, or am I missing something? Um, I think you're missing something. So, here, like, these, these are very spread out, but here's what... It, it happens. So the first time we see Light Hope showing Adora, Hordak like marching across the fields to grab her from the portal. Um, but later we we find out that Light Hope pulled her through the portal. But that doesn't mean that Light Hope is the one who found her. Uh, I doubt Light Hope would want her to fall her into the Horde's clutches. That was a complete accident. 
But in that season one flashback where we see Shadow Weaver, or is that season one or is that season two? I think that one might be season two where Shadow Weaver I'm, thinks about finding Adora. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's season two. Um, in that scene, we, we see Shadow Weaver talking to Hordak about, like, would, well, was it a success? Obviously talking about the portal experiment. He's like, no, it was a good, nothing happened. I just found this. Um, and he, he, like, has Adora, or someone else has Adora. And he's like, I, I don't know what to do with this. This is useless to me. Do you want this small human? Um, and Shadow Weaver says, yes, please. Yes, please. I'll take four. Hordak did indeed find Adora. Like he was, he was the only one out there. He was the only one who knew about the portal. Um, he opened it. Adora fell through because of Lighthouse machinations. And the the scene in season five we see of him just kind of like bafflingly staring down at Adora. Like he just he's just completely nonplussed at what to do with this baby. Um, like that is the that is the truth of the matter. So uh, there, there's no, um, there's no error there. It's just it can just be a little bit unclear because those scenes are so spread out. Yeah, it's like this. This show is like it's tight, but it still takes up a reasonable amount of airtime, and uh, it can be easy for things as spread out as that to kind of get muddled together. But yeah, the time the timeline does check out generally. Yeah. Um, we do have. Uh, one final question uh, from an anonymous uh, user. Katra is gay or straight? Impossible to say. Uh, Who's to say? We don't have an answer for this. Like, I don't know. Do you? Well, I suppose I suppose we'll have to find out. I guess we'll have to find out. Because um, there's no way to tell right now. I'm not thinking about any dips at any dances. Um, yeah. Not at all. Yeah, no, no, nothing that's happened so far has been at all anything but strictly heterosexual. So we'll, we'll have to, you know, we'll have to see. I've still got, I've still got these bottles, uh, for, uh, for Makora over here, uh, ready to pop. We're ready. We're, we're, so. they just got put up on Netflix. I guess I should totally, uh. Uh, you know, watch that and get ready to pop those bottles. Yeah, get ready to pop those bottles. Um, however, that brings us to the end of this mailbag. I'm sorry we couldn't get around to everything, but once again, we have to leave some things unsaid. Yeah, we have to we have to leave some content um, to be consumed for later. Mm. And uh, but yeah, thank you so much to everybody who sent in questions. Uh, this was super fun. Um, we love getting um, all of this this wonderful like uh, interaction. You know, you guys have been super great so far. The response has been amazing. Like me and Nero just like talk about it all the time. Just like how blown away we are by like how much like how positive the response has been so far. It's it's been really really nice. So thank you. Um, and just as a reminder, once this goes live, our Patreon will also be live. Uh, you'll be able to find us over on patreon.com slash pot of power. Um, if you have the means, just throw a couple of bucks our way. That'll go towards getting us better equipment, making our site look prettier, all sorts of general improvements, as well as getting you some exclusive 
some sclusy podcast where we watch some pretty good, you know, contemporaries of She-Ra, Kipo and the Owl House. Yes, uh, I'm looking forward to that, actually. I'm uh, pretty excited about digging into the Owl House. I watched a couple episodes of it uh, a while back, but uh, but yeah, really excited to dig into that. Yeah, it seems like the Owl House is really picking up steam from what I've seen. Um, but next week, you will find us talking about the first two episodes of Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts. Is it Kipo or Kippo? I, I keep wanting to say Kippo, but I guess we'll find out. Um, I'm sure they'll I'm sure they'll let us know. What if they just never say the main character's name in the show, and that's sort of one of the things? Well, well, then I guess I guess we'll just have to we'll just have to deal with it then. Every time someone tries to do so, just a truck drives by. Can't hear it. Oh, yeah the 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 classic uh, the classic butch hartman maneuver i wish that was the only thing we could say was a classic butch hartman maneuver these days Ugh. yeah this podcast ain't about him though we're not giving him the free airtime. um with that we have reached <laughs> the end of our special mailbag episode i'm looking forward to doing these in the future um for 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 these season wrap-ups this was definitely a big big dive into into a lot of stuff and i love yeah it was i love hearing everyone bounce off of our ideas and bring their own to the table even if we don't necessarily agree or if we 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 think that maybe there's some stuff that uh, doesn't match up with that it's always great to hear other lenses through which the show can be viewed yeah absolutely like it's it's super super fun like just having just being able to kind of interact with like more and like varying perceptions of things like it's it's always it's always a fun time that we've reached the end i have been one of your hosts nero and i've been the other host jane and next week we start season two on the other side of podcast spondos see you there